Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 18. We'll look at verse 1. That's great. Thank you. John chapter 18. Remember, if you have no idea where John is, it's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents in your Bible. There's a pew Bible there in front of you if you need one. Remember, you start in the New Testament, so you go to the, kind of the middle of the Bible and start flipping to the right, and you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you get to Acts, you've gone too far. Look for the big number 18 at the top. That's the chapter that we're in. If you've never opened a Bible before, that's how you find where we are. And we're going to look at verse 1, which is the little number 1 that follows the big 18. And so we're continuing on in our study through this, this gospel account. Remember the Old Testament says somebody's coming, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we're in now, says somebody's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And who is that someone? It is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the promised Redeemer. And so we're looking at his life and ministry this morning, as we have been for quite a while. And as you're opening up to John 18, back in August of 2004, a show began airing on A&E, that network that ran for nine seasons as its own show, and it actually spawned off a few spin-off shows that kind of came after that because it was so popular. And the basic premise of the show was pretty simple. The show followed the daily quest of a small band of people diligently searching to find people who were in trouble. And you might be thinking of like a standard search and rescue show, maybe up in the, the high mountains or out in the ocean. But I am, of course, talking about the show Dog the Bounty Hunter. And as a bounty hunter, Mr. Dog finds people who are in trouble. I've always wondered if you just call him Mr. Dog. He would find people who are in trouble with the law and is tasked with bringing them into the local law enforcement. His name actually popped back up. If you'll remember the, the Brian Landry and the Gabby Pitio story that was happening in Florida, it was Dog the Bounty Hunter. He said, I will throw my, uh, my experience into the mix and I'll take my team and we'll try to find Brian. And like any live-action law enforcement show, you've seen these before. You know, the original was like Cops and then you have these other shows like this. There's a lot of foot chases, aren't there? Kind of the show's really built around the, the cop shows up and they're searching for the, for the perp and then the, the perp sees the cops and just takes off running. A lot of foot chases in these kind of things. And it's always been interesting to me. They ask a very strange question when they finally apprehend the person who's been running. They ask the question, why were you running? Which I always thought was just kind of an odd question to ask. I thought the answer was pretty obvious that I don't want to go to jail. That'd be a pretty obvious answer to me. But in, in those types of shows, there's always this chase and struggle. There's always trying to run this person down. What you never actually see is you never actually see someone go, Hey, that's me. You're looking for me. I'm over here. Please come and arrest me. You never see that. You see him trying to run out the back door. You see him trying to jump in a chase car and take off in foot. You never see, hey, we're looking for someone. Oh, yeah, that's me. That's me. Please arrest me. Please take me in. You, you never see that. And as we've been studying John's gospel, you may remember a few times when others wanted to arrest Jesus and even put him to death. He has been at odds with the Pharisees from chapter 2. There's been multiple times where the Pharisees are, are trying to kill him and take him out. A couple of examples, John chapter 10, the feast of dedication after he claimed to be the son of God. Remember, he continues to be in trouble as saying, no, I actually am the son of God. I am he. My father and I are one. 
And in that moment, back in John 10, they wanted to stone him. Back in John chapter 11, verse 54, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, where that garnered attention and Jesus was kind of stealing thunder away from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were actually very afraid that the Romans would find out more about this guy named Jesus and they would actually bring the might of their government down and squash Jerusalem and take away their place and take away the temple to kind of come and to squish that rebellion. You see all these moments where the Pharisees have been plotting to try to take out Jesus and each time Jesus up until that point had avoided arrest. And the question's why? We're told multiple times in John's gospel that his hour had not yet come. It was not quite time. They were trying to take him, said, but his hour had not yet come. Many weeks ago, prior to the upper room discourse, John told us in John chapter 13, verse 1, that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And we talked about there's this shift that happened in the narrative, in this gospel account, that we're now moving towards something. Okay, his hour had not yet come, but now he says, my hour has come. Many weeks ago, when we were looking, well, a couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we heard Jesus say himself in verse 1 of chapter 17, the hour has come. It's now. It's time. And from that point forward, the cross has been looming. You'll notice in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that great attention is paid to Jesus' agonizing night in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus is sweating drops of blood. He's asking the disciples to stay up with him, reminiscent of the all-night vigil that the high priest in Leviticus 16 would keep with his fellow priests prior to going and doing the atoning work the next day. You'll see the other, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they pay a lot of attention to that. Instead, John focuses on Jesus' arrest. His arrest in the garden. Now chronologically, John was also the last gospel written, and so he was probably aware of what the other information that the others had put in and was trying to kind of hone in on this arrest portion here. And this morning, what's so interesting is that unlike those cop shows, we see Jesus freely surrender, freely and calmly surrender to arrest after his betrayal. It's led some people to ask the question, why? Why do we see him do this? Why do we see him calmly give himself up? Here I am. Please come and arrest me. It's kind of shocking when you think about it. Some liberal scholars have argued that Jesus was just this like mistaken idealist who had claimed that, yes, I'm trying to bring in the kingdom of God and that he wasn't really divine. He was just this kind of mistaken idealist who got swept up in the throes of spiritual fervor and he got crushed by history when the Jews and the Romans got tired of dealing with him. That he was just kind of another like religious crackpot that got swept and crushed under the weight of history. But as we know, and I hopefully we believe in all actuality, it was because he was in complete control of the entire situation because he really is the divine son of God. And he was sovereign over the entire endeavor. He knew exactly what was going on because his hour had come. With that in your mind, I want you to think about that as we go to John chapter 18. I want you to see if you can pick up elements as we read of Jesus being completely in control, completely sovereign over everything that's going on. See if you can pick up on that as we read. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. John 18, and we'll go through verse 14. May we receive these words by faith. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to your word and we rest in you by faith. Pray, O Holy Spirit, you would please come and move and change, challenge and convict if you see fit. Help us to see more of you. Father, and help us to glory in the cross. We ask and pray all these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, so this morning as we look at this passage in John 18, and we're thinking about how God is sovereign, Jesus was sovereign, fully Lord over all that was going on, we're going to ask one big question. How does, this, how does the Lordship of Christ over his own betrayal and arrest give us hope? How does the lordship of Christ over his own betrayal and arrest actually give us hope? How does it give us hope that we see he's fully in control of what's going on here? We're going to see three different ways from the text. And they're basically just going to be kind of the who, what, where, and when. We're going to see that Christ is lord over the where in his arrest. Christ is lord over the who in his arrest. And then Christ is lord over the why in his arrest. So the where, the who, and the why. We see different elements here. Let's look at that first one. Christ is Lord over the where in his arrest, W-H-E-R-E. This is verses 1 and 2. I hope you picked up on the fact that place matters in John's gospel. Again, we remember that this, this gospel was written in real space and time. Jesus walked in real space and time. And that John and the disciples were real people in real space and time. This actually happened in history. A couple of examples of the fact that place matters in John's gospel that you might remember. Maybe that water ceremony back in the temple where Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The temple illumination ceremony. Do you remember at night they would go and light these big candelabras and Jesus points to the temple and says, I am the light of the world. That's me. It points to me. Maybe at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb where death is there. Everybody knows it. And Jesus stands at the mouth of the tomb and what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. That contrast of here's the tomb but here I am. 
Jesus was a real person in real space and time, and he taught other people in real space and time in a variety of places with real historical significance, the temple being one of them. But then we also see another one here. And to understand the significance of the place mentioned in verse 1, this is the brook Kidron, you see that, we need to go back to the Old Testament. This place is actually mentioned 11 times throughout the Bible, Kidron, when you go and you look it up. 2 Samuel 15 verse 23 is an example of this. Now the brook Kidron was a seasonal stream. It was called a wadi. We might call it a holler here, you know, that when it rains and it kind of fills up and then it's dry most of the time. It was this wadi on the east side of old Jerusalem between the city, the walled city, and the Mount of Olives. It was this little valley that you had to go down and cross to get over into the Mount of Olives. And this place was not only historically significant, it was also spiritually significant, given that this took place at the time of the Passover. It was a reminder of God's rescue of the Israelites by protecting them under the blood of the Lamb on the doorways. That was what was going on. The Passover, this remembrance where they would go and they would remember how God led them out. And one of the kind of the, the final way that, that we see in the Exodus account is they would take the blood of the lamb and they would paint it on the doorpost and the, the, the angel of death would literally pass over those houses. Now what was about the brook of Kidron, that uh, Kent Hughes mentioned this in his commentary, he said, a drain ran from the temple altar down to the Kidron ravine to drain away the blood of sacrifices. At this time of year, more than 200,000 lambs were slain. So when Jesus and his band crossed the Kidron, it was probably red with the blood of sacrifice. This divine poetry shows that what was about to take place was not beyond the control of God, regardless of how it appeared. It was an interesting kind of historically significant event that kind of linked what was going on at the temple at the time with kind of what this may have looked like back in Jesus' day. And again, it just kind of adds a little bit of kind of color to the narrative as we look at it here. And what this does when we think about this, that Jesus is Lord over even the where in his arrest, it gives us hope because it reminds us of the work that Christ accomplished on behalf of God's people. As him going and dying as the final and ultimate Passover lamb. That whole Old Testament temple system and the Day of Atonement and all of that, it all pointed forward to Christ because we're told that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He would be treated as a sinner in their place and die the death that they deserve so that they could be protected by the only blood that could truly take away sin. Christ was both the priest and the sacrificial lamb as he offered himself. He fulfilled all of that. We see that in the, the letter to the Hebrews, showing that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That that was just a sign that pointed forward to Christ because the blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away sin. It could never actually fully atone. And so what you have here in the Kidron Valley is you have the actual Passover lamb stepping over the blood of the other Passover lambs during this time in history. It's amazing when you look at it and you think about it. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, speaking of the ministry of Christ, it said, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Kind of a fulfilling the law's demand. Fulfilling God's wrath. If you're here and you trust Christ by faith, there's some good news for you to draw even out of this, the Lord being sovereign over the where. 
You have the assurance of being covered in the blood and righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Christ's wrath or God's wrath has been put away through Christ as he died in your place as the Passover lamb, the true and better one. You have full assurance of that. Colossians 1, 19-20. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. If you are here and you do not know Christ this morning, this is a warning for you. You stand uncovered before the wrath of God. And I would urge you to flee to Christ and be covered in his blood. We have already sung about what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make atonement? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You need a true and better sacrifice in your place. And if you are here and you do not look to Christ by faith, you stand uncovered. And you stand before a holy God. And again, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not or whether you like it or not. It's true. It's true. Jesus and his disciples, when you think about what's going on here, Jesus and his disciples crossed this blood-stained brook shortly after midnight on Friday morning and headed to the walled olive grove of Gethsemane. And most scholars think this was a favorite place where they gathered regularly. And we see in verse 2 that, Jesus, that Judas would have known where this place was as well. Again, here's what the Gospel Transformation Study Bible said in one of its notes about what's going on here. Earlier in the history of redemption, another king crossed the Kidron Valley, reeling in the pain of betrayal. King David, barefoot and weeping, went away from Jerusalem because his son Absalom had conspired to replace his father by force, enlisting a small army to assist him. David's dear friend and counselor Ahithophel was also part of the conspiracy. King David fled from their advances, but Jesus, the greater shepherd king promised in 2 Samuel 7, fled into betrayal of, the closest, of those closest to him, Judas and Peter. And again, you see the significance of the Kidron Brook with King David fleeing from betrayal and there's this band that's been gathered to come and arrest him and David is fleeing the city and here you have in contrast Jesus crossing that same brook going into what he knows is going to be his own betrayal and arrest by those who know him closely. So we see that Christ is Lord over the where but he's also now in our second point he is Christ is Lord over the who in his arrest. This is the bulk of what we're going to look at verses 3 through 10. Now, at this point in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus would have gone away to pray. And we see this account in Luke chapter 22, verses 41, and 44, 41 through 44. And here's what Luke writes. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We know that this is a, an actual medical condition known as hematidrosis caused by extreme sweat. And in those moments of extreme stress and agony, it's possible to actually sweat drops of blood. Such was Christ's agony in the garden as he was feeling the weight of what was about to happen and the stress that was coming. 
And he asked, Lord, please let this cup pass from me. But then he says, but not my will, but yours. He knew that the cup was coming. Look in verse 3. You see Judas enter with this group of armed soldiers. And did you notice who came with them? This is a joint operation between the Romans, the temple police, and the Pharisees. Here's what Ketty said. The hour had come. The coalition of apostate disciple, corrupt church, and pagan civil power arrived in force under the cover of darkness to snuff out the light of the world. Look at verse 4. Look at what happens here. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus willingly gave himself up. He neither ran away nor fought back, and he asked the question, Whom do you seek? And there have been many people seeking Jesus out throughout John's gospel. Those seeking him for healing, those seeking him to hear him teach, those seeking him to see what all the buzz was about, even those seeking out to kill him. There's been a lot of people who have been seeking Jesus throughout this narrative up until this point. And look at verses 5 and 6. The soldiers mention that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and the way he responds is very unique. He responds in a powerful way. He says, I am. And that Greek phrase, ego eimi, is the same phrase used in the Old Testament in Exodus 3.14 when God identifies himself at the burning bush and he says, I am who I am. I'm Yahweh. It's a very distinct and unique thing that Jesus does. Again, reminding and claiming, I am the Son of God. The Father and I are one. I am who I am. Some phrase... The same phrase is used back in John chapter 8, verse 58, when the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Did you notice how the soldiers responded when Jesus uttered this phrase? They drew back and they fell down. They were stunned by this, Jesus' unambiguous claim to be divine. He just kind of, again, we said he quadrupled down, he quintupled down. Whatever portion we're in now, whatever number we're in, he never backs down. He says, I am he. I am the son of God. Some scholars think that there may have been an accompanying sign of validating Jesus' claim. There's no direct evidence in the text, but John still mentions it because it was so out of the ordinary, when you think about it, it was so out of the ordinary for these battle-hardened pagan soldiers with no fear of God to suddenly draw back in fear at the utterance of a solitary, unarmed man. I mean, these are battle-hardened soldiers. And he says, I am. And they fall to the ground. Something happened. They realized who was before them. This, this, this is not just some unarmed guy. There's something else going on. And interestingly enough, did you pick up in verses 7 through 8? They've just fallen on the ground, and then what happens is the whole scene repeats itself. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. That's me. But then he says, let these men go. And who he's talking about is his disciples. He asked to let the disciples go free. Why? Look at verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. This refers back to Jesus' reference to himself as the good shepherd who voluntarily and willingly lays down his life for the sheep. He's basically saying, take me instead, let them go. Verse 10, 
In classic, impetuous Peter fashion, he was not prepared to go without a fight. And he took his sword, probably a Roman short sword that could have been easily concealed, and he tried to kill, more than likely, the closest one to him, and we're here his name, Malchus. And that, just, that sword was designed more for stabbing, not slicing, so it was probably a little bit more blunt. And so as Malchus, you know, he sees the sword coming to him, and he probably tries to evade the blow, you know, getting out of the way. The sword catches his ear, and it struck his ear, and it chopped it off. Luke adds that Jesus immediately healed him. And you think about, you put yourself in the shoes of one of those soldiers. This guy comes and he chops this guy's ear off. Like, whoa, that guy just chopped that guy's ear off. And then Jesus goes, I'm going to heal it. And now the ear's stuck back on. And you still want to arrest that guy? I mean, you think about just the absurdity of what's going on here. But yet we see that all of this is planned. All of this is part of this great sovereign plan. You can probably even imagine the soldiers falling down again even after that happened, but yet they still persist. Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Luke writes, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He knew what was going on, that you were in league with Satan, and it is time. Now, how does this give us hope? This gives us hope because it reminds us again that God is sovereign over everything that happens. Even when the storm clouds gather and people plot against us, King Jesus is on the throne and we continue to trust him. He is in full control. Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. This is a messianic psalm that was written well before Christ came in flesh and it points forward to Christ. What does Psalm 2 say? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He says, see how the nations rage. See how these different rulers, they plot together. You see that with Rome here, with the, the government of Rome and a corrupt church. You see these rulers working together to try to snuff out the Lord. And it says, the king of all the earth looks and he laughs at them, holds them in derision. So you see that Christ was sovereign or in control over the where, even the place mattered. Over the who, he was completely sovereign over who was right there. He knew exactly what was coming. But finally, we see in our third point, Christ is Lord even over the why in his arrest. This is verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. Look at verse 11, where Jesus allows no resistance. He tells Peter to put away his sword. Why? Because all of this is still under the, the control and design of a sovereign God. And look at what Jesus says. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? The cup of God's wrath? Here's what Sproul said. Jesus' passive surrender did not start at the cross. It started the minute he got off his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was then that he took the cup and completely acquiesced to the vocation the Father had set before him. He assented in obedience to the Father to be our substitute in his death. His hour had come. He did not flinch. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He finished that prayer, and then he knew that cup was coming to him. He knew it was going to be there the whole time. 
Look at verse 12 where this corrupt band of thugs from the state and the temple bind Jesus and lead him away to what would be a completely illegal kangaroo court trial with zero charges. Look at verse 13. They lead him to this guy named Annas. It says Caiaphas was the high priest that year, but actually Annas was the power behind the throne. One commentator said, think about Annas like the Don of the Godfather. He's the Godfather back there pulling the strings. He's the power behind the throne. The ESV Study Bible said, under the Roman procurators, three wealthy priestly families largely controlled the extremely important position of high priest. Annas was the patriarch of one of these powerful families of high priest. Acts chapter 4 verse 6 is your reference. He served as high priest during 86 through 15. And the high priesthood was subsequently held by five of his sons, including his son-in-law Caiaphas. And what you see here is just the, the picture of the corruption and nepotism that had crept into the temple and the religious leaders at the time. And remember, Jesus is just hammering them for this throughout this gospel account. And you see this, this temple had been so corrupted and it had just become a power grab. Look at verse 14. It says, Caiaphas wasn't present, but his earlier pronouncement is referenced. He was prepared to treat Jesus like collateral damage to preserve the image and prestige of the Pharisees. John chapter 11, verses 47 to 52. We referenced this before. Said, so, if the, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. What you see here is Caiaphas and his wickedness. He's saying, hey, Jesus can be collateral damage. It's better for us to take him out than Rome come in and absolutely squash us, take away our position, and take away our nation. We're a dusty outcropping. We would be nothing for Rome to come in here and sweep us away. But it's better for us to let's go ahead and wipe Jesus out. And once again, we're reminded of the sovereignty of God and the gospel. Here's what Hendrickson said. Caiaphas poured meaning into his words, but God poured another meaning into them as well. Again, aren't you glad that Jesus kept going? Aren't you glad that he not only obeyed the law of God perfectly, this is his active obedience, but that he also willingly submitted to the Father's will by going to his own death on a cross, his passive obedience. What if Jesus had run? You ever thought about that? What if, like, the cop shows, hey, we're looking for Jesus, and off he runs? What if Jesus had run? What if he had refused to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs when he hung like a sinner between heaven and earth? You see these two kind of images being used, these two like tangible props that are kind of mentioned. You have the sword of Peter. He's trying to advance it with the sword. But Jesus knows the cup's the only way. The cup is the only way. It's not through the sword. It's through the cup and ultimately through the cross. What if we had never, what if Jesus had run and we had never read the words, it is finished? 
It would mean that we do not have a substitute. It would mean that atonement has not been made for us. It would mean that we don't have a Savior. What if he had just run? But he did it. Hebrews chapter 9, 24 to 28. For Christ has entered and not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's hope. Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. And Jesus' question in this passage pierces right to our hearts. Hang with me, we're bringing it in for a landing. The question that Jesus asked pierced right to our heart. And that question is, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Are you looking to yourself for salvation? Are you seeking yourself? Are you looking for your own effort? Are you looking to your own religious record? Are you looking to your own personal piety as the thing that this is what I'm going to bring? I look to myself. You say, whom do you seek? And you say, me. That's the wrong answer. If there's any me or I in that equation, it is the wrong answer. Are you looking to this world? Are you looking to money and power and fame, your ability to work the system, the idol of comfort, your social standing, whatever it is, whom do you seek? Are you looking to that from the world as this is the thing that's going to bring me and make me and set me right before a holy God? I've got some bad news for you. None of those things are going to save you. None of them can rescue you from the wrath of a holy God. Only Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was strong enough to drink the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom and rise in victory. Again, the cup is key. Because if you do not have Christ as your Savior, that cup is reserved for you. And that is a scary, terrifying thought. You are not powerful enough to stand before a holy God and do it on your own. That's why you need Christ. Fully God, fully man, fully sinless, able to drink the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs for a bunch of undeserving rebel sinners like you and me. That's the gospel. He drank the cup so you don't have to. If you do not have Christ, that cup is still full for you on the day of judgment. And again, I ask you, turn to Christ, flee to Christ. Are you covered by the blood of the Lamb? Are you hidden in Christ? Only a perfect shield will be able to stand up on the day of judgment. And only Christ is that perfect shield. That is why we say he is our strong tower. He is our fortress. He is our shield. He is the one we rest in. That's why we're said that we are hidden in Christ. We are so hidden in Christ and so covered with his righteousness because if there was any little speck of us peeking out from underneath that, it would be fully worthy of wrath. We are covered in Christ, covered in his righteousness. If you are here and you know and you trust Christ as your Savior, 
Look to Him alone and rest in Him alone. Rest in His sovereign care. Dwell upon His grace. Trust Him with your life. He was faithful to the end and He will remain faithful forever. In those moments where you want to run, Jesus never did. Put down the shovel of your own moral effort. Get off the treadmill of earning and trying to prove yourself. Rest in Christ. Rest in His love. Rest in your justification and adoption. It is finished because of Christ. Rest in Him. Dwell in Him. Put down the shovel. One man's death in the place of many, none of whom deserved it, but all of who were called by grace from death and darkness into life and light. Again, the question hangs over us this morning as we consider this text. Whom do you seek? If it's anything other than Christ, repent. Turn to Christ, flee to Christ, rest in Christ, look to Christ. It's all about Christ. And to that we say, amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This reminder of the courage of Christ in the fear and face of death. Lord, willingly offered himself up, knowing full well what was about to happen to him. All part of the sovereign plan of God from the very foundation of the world. Lord, that makes us just stand in awe of you, stand in awe of your sovereignty. It makes us stand in awe of your grace and your mercy and your love, with the great love of which you loved us. We're grateful that you never ran. And Father, we pray that you would be with us, O Lord, and remind us of your mercy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand together and sing.